Hi, I'm Christy and I'm in my third year of medical sciences. Here at Christian Union, we believe the Bible is God's word written down for us. And so it's such a great privilege that we get to read the Bible together. Today we are reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. It's in, written in the inside of your handout for you to follow along if you'd like to. Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But... If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies of our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. There's a secret that real writers know that wannabe writers don't. And the secret is this. It's not the writing part that's hard. What's hard is sitting down to write. What keeps us from sitting down is resistance. Uh, That's the opening line of a little book by Stephen Pressfield uh, called The War of Art. 
Uh, and Pressfield uh, normally writes novels and screenplays. He wrote uh, the screenplay, the novel, uh, as well for The Legend of Bagger Vance, if you've ever come across that, the Will Smith film. Uh, but here he's writing about being a writer. And he's, the whole point of the book is that uh, what makes writing hard to do is this thing called the resistance. Uh, and he goes on. The following is a list, in no particular order, of those activities that most commonly elicit resistance. One, the pursuit of any calling in writing, painting, music, film, dance or any creative art, however marginal or unconventional. Two, the launching of any entrepreneurial venture or enterprise for profit or otherwise. Any diet or health regimen. Four, any program of spiritual advancement. Five, any activity whose aim is tighter abdominals. Six, any course or program designed to overcome an unwholesome habit or addiction. Seven, education of every kind. Eight, any act of political, moral or ethical courage, including the decision to change for the better some unworthy pattern or thought or, uh, thought or conduct in ourselves. Nine, the undertaking of any enterprise or endeavour whose aim is to help others. Ten, any act that entails commitment of the heart, the decision to get married, to have a child, to weather a rocky patch in a relationship. And eleven, the taking of any principled stand in the face of adversity. He says that resistance seems to come from outside ourselves. It's this thing that pushes back against us. We locate it in spouses, jobs, bosses, kids. Peripheral opponents, as Pat Riley used to say when he coached the LA Lakers. But Pressfield says, resistance is not a peripheral opponent. Resistance arises from within. It's self-generated and self-perpetuated. Resistance is the enemy within. And I wonder if you resonate with uh, Pressfield's experience. Do you find that there are good things that you want to do, but somehow there's something within you, not something outside you, but something within you that keeps dragging you in the opposite direction? You've got an assignment to do, but somehow, even though you know it would be good for your education, you find yourself getting dragged in the other direction. There are good things that you want to do for others, but although you have good intentions, you don't seem to carry them out you discover that you're kind of like a lawn bowls ball that always keeps swinging in the wrong direction. Actually, one of my mates uh, used to be the high-performance manager for Australian lawn bowls, uh, which seems to be a very strange sort of title. He reckons that his job was basically to tell them to stop drinking and smoking, and that was uh, the task of the high-performance manager for lawn bowls. But you know lawn bowls. You roll it down, and it always rolls in a particular direction. It's biased. And the thing that Pressfield is trying to describe, that bias in our nature uh, that leads us to keep swinging in the wrong direction, is what the Bible calls sin. Now, here's a description of it from Paul, one of the earliest followers of Jesus, in his letter to the church in Rome. Uh, he's describing his attempts to keep the law that God gave to Moses about 1,500 years before Paul, so about 3,500 years ago. It says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. 
And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. See, Paul agrees with Pressfield. There's actually something gone wrong inside us. I don't want to be a gossip, but I end up gossiping. I think that porn is degrading, but I keep looking at it. I want to love God and others, but if I'm honest, I really just think about myself most of the time. We are like lawn bowls, that we're biased in our very nature, so that with the best intentions in the world, we seem to keep swinging in the wrong direction. But Paul actually sees further than Pressfield, because Pressfield just thinks that this malevolent force is out there to ruin my life by stopping me from writing the book that I've got within me, or it's out to ruin my potentially hard abs by making me all flabby. But Paul sees that actually this thing inside us, this sin, is actually out to ruin your life for eternity by bending us away from God, by provoking his right anger at us for ignoring him and for doing evil to each other. Pressfield thinks that if we don't get this sorted out, we won't reach our full potential. But Paul knows that unless we get this sorted out, it's going to send us to hell, eternity under the judgment of God. And that's why he cries out at the end of chapter 7 of his letter to the Romans, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? He sums up his conclusions in chapter 7, verse 25. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the flesh a slave to the law of sin. Now when Paul talks about the flesh, it's important to realise that he doesn't mean the body as though if we could just sort of get rid of our bodies, then we'd float free as these beautiful, wonderful, good souls. No, he just means by flesh, humans without God's spirit. Humans as we naturally are, biased and bent away from God by sin. People often think that we need to get rid of God in order to be free. But actually, Paul points out that without God, we're not free. (laughs) We're actually slaves. We become slaves to our innate bias, to our sin, that swings us away from loving God and loving others. And so the obvious question is, well, what can we do about that? Pressfield says that the way to beat resistance is to become a professional to dig in, to take your work seriously, to sit down every day and write no matter what. If you want harder abs, you've got to do your crunches every day. Go hard or go home. The Judaism of Paul's day said you've got to keep the law of Moses. Islam says you've got to follow the five pillars. Buddhism says follow the noble eightfold path. All of them claim to be seeking spiritual life but actually none of them are dealing with the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is that something's gone wrong with me. 
I'm biased against God, left to myself. I don't naturally swing towards loving God and loving others. I swing away from it. I'm actually a slave to sin. I'm guilty before God. I'm rightly condemned under his law and I'm facing eternal death. That's a pretty bad situation to be in. But the good news of Christianity is that while I can't do anything about that, God can and he has. You can see it there in chapter 8, verse 1 that we looked at before. Uh, Chapter 8, the big number, uh, the verses are the little numbers in the handout. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What does he mean? He goes on in verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Let's try and unpack that a bit because actually this gets to the very heart of Christianity. This is what it's all about. This is actually the key to spiritual life. Paul's saying that the law of Moses that was given by God to Israel outlined the good life, a life that centres around love for God and love for our neighbours. But that although the law itself was good, it was never able to produce the good life that it pointed towards. It's not that the law was bad, it's that we are. The law was weakened by the flesh, as he says, by our bias against God, so that we couldn't do what we ought to do. And so what did God do? Was he like Stephen Pressfield? Did he say, just, just dig in, go harder? Believe in yourself. You can do it. No, he didn't. Because that wouldn't achieve anything. It would be like yelling at the lawn bowl to stop swinging that way and go the other way. It doesn't actually work. That's just the nature of the lawn bowl. It's always going to roll that way. We're incapable of changing our nature. In fact, as Paul's pointed out previously, that was the reason God gave the law in the first place. Not to enable us to change, but to show us that we couldn't. To show us that the solution could never be us. It could only ever be God. And Paul says now that God has provided the solution by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. Paul's being very precise here in his language. Uh, If he'd said that God sent his son in the likeness of flesh, you might think he meant that Jesus wasn't really human. And if he said that God sent his son in sinful flesh, you might think he meant that Jesus was sinful. So he says God sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh so that he conveys the idea that Jesus was both fully human and totally sinless. And that's important. Because it's only by being human and sinless that Jesus could be a sin offering, an innocent sacrifice who takes our sin on himself, dying in our place. 
uh, like someone paying a fine for you. Uh, Or maybe better, uh, someone who says to the terrorists, let the hostages go free, take me instead. Because Jesus didn't deserve punishment and he wasn't held captive by sin, he could actually exchange himself for us. He could take the punishment of God's anger at our sin on himself so we could go free. And Paul says that in doing that, God condemned sin. He stripped it of its power to accuse us before him because the punishment had already been taken by Jesus. There was no fine left to pay. The hostage exchange had been made. But actually, Paul says more than that, doesn't he? Because he doesn't say that God condemned sin just so we could escape God's punishment. He says in verse 4, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is, God's purpose in sending Jesus was not to make you right with God so you could keep on sinning just like before. His purpose was to make you right with him so that you would be so transformed that you'd live a righteous life, the righteous life that the law pointed towards, but was unable to produce. Jesus didn't just die so you could be forgiven. Jesus died so you could be good, so you could have spiritual life. How does that work? It's actually quite simple. See, when God works in us by his Holy Spirit so that we understand and believe and trust what he's done for us in Jesus, when we grasp how much he's loved us and how he's freed us from the power of sin, the power that sin held over us to accuse us before God, well, actually by his Spirit we stop rebelling against God and we start loving him. When the Holy Spirit enables us to trust Jesus' death, we're not only forgiven, we're transformed. We're made alive. We actually are changed so that we love God and love others, just like Richie was saying before. See, the law yells at the lawn bowl that it's going the wrong way. It says, stop going the wrong way. Can't you see that's the wrong way? But the Holy Spirit picks up the lawn bowl, turns it around, and rolls it down so it swings in the other direction. It actually changes our nature. You can see it there in verses 5 to 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now, the translation here Uh, can make it sound as though this is about what you do, as though he's urging you to live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. But actually, the original Greek makes it quite clear that he's not talking about what you do. He's talking about who you are. It's literally those who exist according to the flesh, those who are according to the flesh, have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who exist according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. It's not about what you do, as though Christianity is a self-help program. 
You know, try not to live according to the flesh. Try to live according to the spirit. No, it's something quite different. It's actually an offer of spiritual life from God. Not by our effort, but by his. Through his son, by the power of his spirit. And you can see the life that comes about in verses 6 to 9. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Saying that God actually transforms us so we're no longer hostile to God. We're no longer focused on the things that he hates, the things that lead to death, our own self-centred pride and rebellion. By God's spirit, he's saying, we are transformed so that our mind is governed by life and peace. Not just a sort of generic life and peace, as though, whoa, I'm so peaceful, I'm so full of life. No, but knowing that we're at peace with God and we have life because of Jesus' death for us. Jesus' death that is applied to us when God gives us his spirit. It's that life and peace with God through Jesus that preoccupies us now. That is the focus of our thought our desires, our ambitions, not the old life of hostility towards God. He goes on in verse 8. Those who are in the realm of of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin... The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. That is, if you've been transferred from the realm of the flesh, you ruling yourself, to the realm of the Spirit, God ruling you, then although your body is subject to death because of sin, that is, you'll still die physically because of the effects of sin on the world, God's Spirit has made you spiritually alive. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you really are right with God. You're alive to God. You're no longer dead to him. That's what it means to have spiritual life. Now, it's important to say that Paul is not saying that Christians are morally perfect. Certainly not claiming that. We're far from that. But he is saying that because Jesus paid for our sin, we are now 100% right with God. And more than that... We're transformed, we're the lawn bowls ball that's been picked up and turned around. So that as we roll down the course of life, we're actually growing in our love for God and others. As we reflect on what he's done for us in Jesus. We're not there yet, but we're heading in the right direction. But there's more. Have a look at verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Although our bodies will decay and die because of sin, our ultimate destiny is not to be disembodied souls, but to be bodies raised from the dead, just like Jesus was. Not as some kind of zombie, but as someone who has punched through death and out the other side. 
Not life after death, but life after life after death. Because after all, says Paul, if God has raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit is living in you, then he will raise you from the dead as well. That's what the Spirit does. He gives life, spiritual life now, and he will give us physical life in the future, in the age to come. And all of this, of course, has massive implications for how we live. As Paul says in verse 12, we no longer have any obligation to live according to the flesh, just doing our own thing regardless of God, which leads to death. In the past, sin used to be able to say to us, well, look, there's nothing you can do. I've got you. You're already sunk. You may as well just give in. But now that we've been made alive by God's spirit, instead of sin killing us, we get to kill sin. Uh, The pastor, John Stott, points out that this is neither masochism, taking pleasure in self-inflicted pain, nor is it asceticism, resenting and rejecting the fact that we have bodies and natural bodily appetites. It's rather a clear-sighted recognition of evil as evil, leading to such a decisive and radical repudiation of it that no imagery can do it justice except putting it to death. We owe sin nothing, says Paul. It was trying to kill us. And so now that we've been set free from its power, now that we've been made alive, we get to take revenge on it. We get to return the favour. Sin tried to kill us, and now we get to kill it. People are very keen to call out evil in other people, but Christians are supposed to call it out in themselves. To use Jesus' words, we're to gouge it out. We're to cut it off. We're to show no mercy to it. We're not to play with our sin or flirt with it or indulge in it. No, sin is awful. A hatred of God and others. So Paul says, take it out to the back paddock and shoot it. He's not saying try harder, kill sin and God might give you spiritual life. No, he's saying that if you put to death the misdeeds of the body by the spirit, then you already have spiritual life. Because putting those things to death shows that you already have the Spirit. You're already a child of God, otherwise you wouldn't be putting sin to death. And if you're a child of God, then you have nothing to fear from your Heavenly Father. You just have an an eternal inheritance to look forward to. And you can see it there in the last little bit in verses 14 to 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul gives us four things to show that we have real spiritual life. Firstly, those who are spiritually alive are led by the Spirit of God to put sin to death. Like I said before, that doesn't mean that Christians are morally perfect, but rather that through Jesus' death, 
and by the, that they believe in by the power of the Spirit, the direction of their life has changed. Rather than indulging in rebellion against God, now they love God and hate sin. Secondly, those who are spiritually alive no longer live in fear of God's punishment. You heard before what Richie was saying, that when he thought that uh, he was under the law, that um, he had to live up to God's standard, what it produced was not love for God and love for others, but actually a fear of God and a contempt for others. Sometimes uh, people think that Christians try to be good because they're afraid that God will punish them if they don't. But that actually couldn't be more wrong. Christians want to be good because they love God and they love God because they know he sent Jesus to take the punishment in their place. Christians don't try to be good because they're afraid of God's punishment. They try to be good because they're no longer afraid of God's punishment. They love him. Thirdly, those who are spiritually alive know God as their father. They have the spirit of God's son alive in them. They've been adopted into God's family and they know it. There's nothing, you know, those who are spiritually dead, they never dream of calling God their father. But for Christians, it's just the most natural thing in the world. You hear it all the time. They pray to God as their heavenly father. And we can call him father because we're in his son, Jesus, and the spirit of his son is in us. And fourthly, we look forward to our inheritance, eternal life, resurrection from the dead, which God has already given to his son, Christ Jesus, and that we'll share with him. And so we're willing to suffer with Christ as we look forward to sharing the glorious inheritance that he has. That's what it looks like to have spiritual life. It's not something that we can do. It's not a self-help program. Left to ourselves, we're trapped. Trapped by our resistance against God. Bent out of shape by sin. Always rolling away from him. But by giving us his spirit, God actually picks us up. And he turns us around so that now we roll towards him. Not because of the law, but because we know his love for us in sending his son Jesus to pay for our sin with his own blood. We can't make ourselves alive, says Paul. But if we trust in Jesus, God will make us alive by his spirit, putting sin to death, free from fear, knowing God as our father, and rejoicing in eternal life with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the offer of spiritual life that you give us through your Son by the power of your Spirit. Please help us to trust in Jesus and that by your Spirit you would change us that we might know you better, love you more, and live more and more uh, in ways that please you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.